I'm reading from Deuteronomy 4, verses 1 and 2, and then 15 through 31. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. So watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, so that you, may do, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. Now the Lord was angry with me on your account and swore that I would not cross the Jordan and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For I will die in this land. I shall not cross the Jordan, but you shall cross and take possession of the good land. So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you become the father of children and the children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make it idle in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke, provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will, get, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things that come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you nor forget the, the covenant with your fathers which he swore to them. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It feels like it's already been a, a full, heavy service. I wish I had this lighthearted uh, message for us, but I think it'll be actually fitting to continue in this, this vein. Um, if you weren't here last week, uh, we're doing a summer series on the book of Deuteronomy, which uh, at first glance doesn't probably feel as though it's particularly relevant to our lives today. 
Um, but we're going to be focusing on the core theme of Deuteronomy, which is the theme of covenant. What does it mean to live in a covenant relationship with the God of the universe? I think you'll find that something that is incredibly uh, relevant today. We'll be focusing in on chapters 4 through 11 of Deuteronomy, which gives us the, the guiding principles of the covenant. It doesn't give us all the specific laws, but really the core ideas and principles and postures in this covenant relationship with God. Deuteronomy is written, um, it's a series of speeches that Moses gave to the children of Israel right on the verge of entering in the promised land. This was a new generation of Israelites who were maybe just kids when they came out of Egypt or maybe hadn't even been born yet. And so... um, Uh, They're going into a promised land, and there's all sorts of threats in this promised land. There's, of course, there's armies and enemies that threaten to kill them, but there's also the gods uh, and the idols of the peoples there that threaten to entice them and to pull them away from their worship of Yahweh. And so this is a, this was written, this was speeches given to remind the people to remain faithful to the covenant they'd made with Yahweh, with God, uh, at Sinai. As they move into this moving, this, this changing culture they're about to go into to stay faithful. And, and I was thinking about that this week. The theme is um, remaining faithful to God in the midst of a changing culture. I thought that sounds kind of, kind of relevant today. <laughs> How do we remain faithful to God in the midst of a changing culture? And that's what we're talking about this summer. Um, last week, I gave you a history of the covenant that God made with Israel. And the next two weeks, we're going to look at really the very essence, the core uh, of this relationship with God. Today, we're going to look at what is God's heart towards us in this covenant Next week, we'll look at what is our heart towards God, or what it should it be in this covenant. So today, we're going to look at what is God's fundamental posture towards his people in this covenant relationship, all right? And before I I launch, I just want you to think for a second. When you think about that question, what is God's heart towards you? What is God's fundamental posture towards you? What does he think about you? What does he feel about you? I wonder what your kind of gut theology is on that. I don't mean like, you know, your intellectual, what you, what you kind of know to be true. But what does your gut tell you when you think, what is, when God thinks about me, when he's looking at my life, what, what does he think and feel? What's his fundamental posture? Okay, I want you to think about that for a second. Is, is the fundamental posture one of love? I'm talking about the God of your gut. Or is it uh, delight? Or is it something closer to disappointment? Um, just vaguely disappointed in you. Or even anger or criticism. Or maybe just there, there's not much interest at all. I mean, if you can picture his face looking at you, like what, what's happening on his face? When, is there a smile on his face when he looks at you? Is there a frown? Um, is there a yawn? <laughs> you know, what's, what is his fundamental heart and posture towards you? Today, we're going to look at what is God's heart towards his covenant people. We're gonna, there's this very interesting dynamic in Deuteronomy 4. Um, you get, on the one hand, in verse 24, it tells us that our God is a jealous God. And then in verse 31, it says that our God is a merciful, or Arlene's translation said, a compassionate God. So God's 
jealous and God is merciful. And how is that all possible at the same time? I want to talk about the dynamic between those two realities in our God. All right? So that's what we're going to do this morning. And uh, I'm going to argue that there's actually no contradiction. And I mean, when you read, it's like, that's weird. You just said you're jealous and you're going to like punish people and send them off. And then the next breath you say you're forgiving and merciful and gracious. How do I put all that together? So I want to put that together for us this morning. So we're going to start um, with uh, verse uh, 19 and 20. And I want, to t- I want to start by talking about God's covenant love for us, okay? For, in this case, Israel. Verse 19, uh, when you look up at the stars and see the sun, the moon, and the st- skies, all the heavenly ray, don't be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. Right? These are th- God's given all the nations, the sun, moon, and stars. That's, everyone has that in common. And, but here's the verse. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance as you now are. Okay? This is the relationship between God and his people. This is who we are for God. Um, what's this? Oh, okay, gotcha. Uh, sorry, confused. All right, where, where am I? Where am I right now? Um, the people, we are the people of his inheritance, or Arlene's translation, uh, God's own possession. Today I want to talk about what does it mean to be God's inheritance, to be God's very possession. I'm taking you uh, to another place in Deuteronomy that talks about this. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. All right, I want you to just let this wash over you this morning. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. Treasured possession, chosen, God's affection, God's love. This language given to Israel continues right into the New Testament, given to us as Jews and Gentiles. First Peter 2.9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. All right, I know some of this is familiar, but I want you to let this sink in this morning. We are the people of his inheritance, those of us who commit our lives to Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Here's the language you just heard. We are his chosen ones. I have chosen you. You're mine. I I picked you out. We are, this is my favorite phrase, his treasured possession. The object of his affection, that verse said. The object of his covenant love. Right? This is who you are. And again, I love that phrase, treasured possession. I want you to think of what is your most treasured possession in life? Something you just treasure. You love it. You delight in it. It probably isn't a possession. It's, it may be a person, right? Uh, maybe it's a possession. Uh, but maybe it's, you know, a child. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a good friend. Maybe it's a cat. You know, whatever it is, right? But you treasure it. You you. Uh, you have such affection for it. And, and this is the language that God uses to describe his heart for his people and his relationship. It's a passionate relationship. It's a possessive 
in the best sense of that word relationship, you're mine. It's a possessive. It, it's, a, it's an affectionate relationship. And I would argue, it, for many of us, it will take a lifetime for that to go from here to here. To truly live in our identity as God's treasured possession. I count it the, literally the best moments in my life when that reality hits home and I feel like God's spirit or something happens in my life where God overwhelms me with this truth. This is who you are for me, Dave. You are my beloved, which is what David means, which is a beautiful part of my story. That wasn't supposed to be a joke. It's true. That's what it means. Um, <laughs> you're my beloved. I love you. I treasure you. I have affection for you. And, and some of us have never dared to believe that the God of the universe could actually feel that way about us. And yet that's consistent biblical language. But those are the greatest moments. And sometimes they're few and far between. It will take a lifetime to believe this and begin to live within this identity as God's treasured possession. But what I want to do for the rest of the time is, is ask the question, what does it mean to be God's treasured possession in this world? What does it look like? Well, um, what does it look like to have the God of the universe say, you're mine. You belong to me. I love you. I treasure you. You're, my, you're mine. We're in this covenant together. We're stuck with each other. And I love being stuck together with you. Okay? What does that mean to be God's treasured possession? Well, um, what it means is we will experience God's jealousy and we will experience God's mercy. <laughs> That's what it means to be his treasured possession. So let's look at these two sides of this reality. Um, first, it means that we will experience God's jealousy. So let's look at the verse. Uh, verse 20... Where is it? Uh, verse uh, 23, right? Uh, be careful not to forget the covenant the Lord your God made. Don't make an idol. Verse 24, why? For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. And here's the phrase, a jealous God. And if you've never heard this before, you might go, that sounds really strange to hear God describe himself as jealous. I, I, all throughout scripture, I'm being called not to be jealous, right? Don't envy. Don't be jealous of other people. Don't be insecure. Appreciate what you have. Now, God is actually calling himself jealous. About 35 times in scripture, God calls himself jealous. Uh, the context is almost always idolatry, which is the context here, right? The context of other gods that were out there among the nation's cultures and the idols that they would form. Literally, they would, you know, make physical representations of their gods with wood or stone. And they would bow down to those images, those idols, and worship them. Their hearts would be enticed away from Yahweh to the other gods of the culture. And it's always in that context where God says, I am a jealous God. He's saying, I am jealous for you. I have a love that is possessive of you in the best sense. I don't want to share you with any of the other gods out there. I want you for myself. Okay, the word sometimes jealous also gets translated as zealous or zeal. And I think that's helpful. He's saying, I've got this heart that is zealous for you. I have a passionate zeal for the hearts of my people. I want to be at the center of your heart. I want to be the thing that you go to to find your security in life and your joy and your satisfaction. I want you to treasure me the way I treasure you. I'm zealous for that. I found some good quotes on the jealousy of God this week. Uh, to say that God is jealous certainly does not mean that he is suspicious because of some insecurity in his heart. No. 
God's jealousy is his zeal to protect a love relationship with his people. His jealousy is the passionate energy by which he is provoked and stirred and moved to take action against whatever or whoever stands in the way of his enjoyment of what he loves and desires. What is the enjoyment of what he loves and desires? That's us, okay? Another one. No man with any moral fiber wants to share his wife with another man, and neither does God. He expects exclusive devotion from her. When, he, when she goes after other lovers, that is, when she worships other gods and thus commits spiritual adultery, he is said to be jealous, right? The marriage analogy is perfect here. <laughs> God has that possessive, in the right sense, jealousy for his bride, the church. Oops, oh, there it popped up. Here it comes. Verse 24, and with that description of jealous, you get this image, Right? For God is a what? Consuming fire. Okay? God is a consuming fire. I want to talk about that for a second. And the first thing to note is that in Israel's case, that's not just a metaphor. (laughs) They actually experienced him as a devouring, consuming fire. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. Horeb's just another name for Sinai, Mount Sinai, okay? When he said to me, assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their, uh, teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow, and then wrote them on two tablets of stone. All right, here's our image, right? A consuming fire. And I just want you to picture the experience. Imagine seeing a blazing fire out of which a voice speaks to you, summons you, gives you an identity, places demands on you, right? Tells you to do certain things. Um, This was Moses' first experience with God, right? When he was a shepherd out in Midian, he saw this bush, and it was burning. And he walked over the bush, and this voice spoke to him out of the fire, Moses, I am Yahweh, and I have come to rescue my people, and I'm sending you to Pharaoh, to bring, bring my people out. God, I don't really want to do that. It doesn't really matter, Moses. I'm sending you, right? And, he, and God fulfills that, rescues his people. They come back to that same place where Moses met God at the burning bush at Mount Sinai, and God appears to them, right? In this, as you just read, this, this fire. I am the Lord your God. You will be my people. I will be your God. He, he literally speaks out of the fire to all the people of the Ten Commandments. Here's things you shall do. Here's things you shall not do. You're my treasured possession. You're my kingdom of priests. It was this overwhelming, terrifying experience for the Israelites. They heard his voice, and they told Moses, Moses, you go talk to him. We don't want to hear God's voice anymore. You talk to him, we'll listen. Whatever he tells you to do, you tell us, we'll do it. This is all a little too overwhelming. And God wanted it to be that way. <laughs> if you look, at, look, up, look farther in our chapter, verse 35, he says this, 
Moses says, you are shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Beside him there is no other. From heaven he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth he showed you his great fire. God said, I want it to be this. I'm disciplining you. I I want this image to be burned in your minds, so to speak. I want it to be this entirely thrilling and, and overwhelming thing that you will know that I am the Lord and there is no other. Amazing experience, fire. So bring together this description of a God who is jealous with this image of fire. And here's what you get. You get this God who is wild, who is big, who is a little terrifying, and who has this heart that burns with this white, hot, zealous passion for his people. Okay, that's the image we're getting. And to enter into covenant with God is to be the object of his passionate zeal. To break covenant with God, to go after other gods, is to subject yourself to his fiery jealousy for you. We would say today, you do that and you're playing with fire. (laughs) Right? That's what we would say. So we're getting this this fierce side of God that comes out in, in some consequences for Israel whenever they go after other gods. Verse 25, after you've had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil, look what happens, uh, in the eyes of the Lord, you arouse his anger. And I call the heavens and earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. Okay? You go against God, you arouse his jealousy, there will be consequences to that. Interesting, really interesting, what's the ultimate consequence of idolatry? It's not just exile, what's the ultimate consequence? Verse 28, the consequence of idolatry is? Verse 28, the consequence of idolatry is? Idolatry, Right? I'm going to send you out of the land, and guess what's going to happen? You're going to worship man-made gods. The ultimate consequence and punishment of idolatry is idolatry. (laughs) God hands you over to these other gods. You want these other gods? I will hand you over to them. You will find out just how powerless they are to save you, which would be like a a jealous lover saying, you're going to find out you never had it so good, right, when you're with me. That's, That's the image of God that we're getting here. Why is God jealous? Because we're his treasured possession. We're in covenant with him. Right? And lest we think this is just Old Testament God. Old Testament images. Okay? God, this is Old Testament. This is Deuteronomy. God's gotten softer in his, in his later years. Right? I mean, he's, he's, he's eased up. Right? Here's some New Testament language. This is from Hebrews. Talking about the new covenant. Well, now you New Testament Christians, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, but you've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. Not he was, but he still is. He still has the same zealous, passionate desire for his people. An unwillingness to share them with other gods. 
He's a jealous God. All right, so that quality, though, needs now to be paired with this other quality of mercy, right? Verse 31, look at it. For the Lord your God is a merciful, or yours might say, a compassionate God. He is jealous, but he is also merciful. So you have this, this, this fierce, uncompromising side of God's heart, but here now you have this soft and tender side of God's heart for his people. And, and I, you know, I said there's 35 examples of God describing himself as jealous. There are countless examples in scripture as, of God describing himself as merciful. Mercy captures the very essence of who God is, right? When he, when he encounters Moses, this is right after, um, <laughs> after the golden calf experience. And Moses says, I want to see your glory. I want to see who you are. And remember God the rock of ages, puts him in the cleft of the rock and passes by him and he pronounces his character. And this is what God says about himself. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This description gets repeated throughout the scriptures. This is the essence of who God is. He is, he is a merciful God. And when you look at the story, God's history with Israel you see his jealousy, but you, you can't help but also see his mercy, his patience, his long-suffering with this wayward people who just can't seem to get it right. And God keeps sticking with them, merciful, patient, long-suffering again and again. And he describes it here. Look at, um, look at uh, verse 29. But if from there, if from exile... You seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you're in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God, right? He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by oath. I love that phrase in verse 29. But if from there meaning from exile, from the farthest reaches of the land, and, and from years and years and centuries, in Israel's case, of disobedience, even from that place, if you turn, you will find a God who is waiting for you with mercy and compassion. There's, you cannot go far enough that you can escape the mercy of your God. No amount of time, no amount of distance. He will be there with this merciful heart. Why is God so merciful? Look at verse 31. Because this. He will not abandon or destroy you. And here's what I focus on. He will not forget the covenant. He won't forget the covenant, right? He made a vow to his people. And his mercy really has very little to do with you. Has everything to do with the kind of person he is. He's faithful to his promises. He made a covenant. He's going to stick with the covenant. No matter what you do, he will be a faithful covenant partner through thick and thin. And that means a lot of mercy for you. All right, so there's the sum. You are his treasured possession. What does that mean? It means he is jealous for you. Why is he jealous? Because you're his treasured possession. And it means he is merciful. Why is he so merciful? Because you're his treasured possession. Right? These, are, these are the utterly essential sides of what it means for God to be in a covenant with a people that he cares deeply about. You guys with me still? 
Okay. Now what that means is, of course, sometimes we're going to experience God in very different ways. Sometimes we'll experience him as angry. I can say that. You're going to find Jesus angry. You're going to find God the Father angry. Sometimes we'll experience him as incredibly tender and warm. And some people look at the Old Testament like, oh, God's so fickle. It feels like he's all over the place. Well, actually, God is incredibly consistent. His, his, his covenant love is consistent. His people are fickle. <laughs> and so the love, the consistent love is responding appropriately to whatever his people are doing and they're, they're going back and forth. That's, that's how it works in the relationship with God. All right, so that is, I know there's so much more we could say. A start on God's jealousy and his mercy. I want to leave you with a thought uh, that is similar to last, last week's thought. I, I want to contrast what we just saw with uh, cultural Christianity. And we'll do that throughout this series. We'll be thinking about how is this covenant relationship with God different than the cultural Christianity we see around us. Um, I want to talk about one version of cultural Christianity that's out there. And it's one that I feel like I heard growing up a lot. Um, and it's this. It's, it's, a, it's a cultural version where the dominant and almost only theme is this dominant theme of God's unconditional grace. Okay? And I want to be careful I say this. You're going to think I'm a heretic if I don't say this quite right. But... Um, it's this idea that the dominant theme that you need to hear is God's unconditional grace. There's nothing you can do that make God's lo- right, makes God love you more. There's nothing you can do that makes God love you left, let less. Uh, when you blow it, whatever you do, God is up there and he is, th- he is there to dispense grace on you. All right? And, and the desire, and I think that message, of course, is to free us from some sort of legalistic view of God or some judgmental view. And I'm all, all for that. But I think it left, it left me with a view of God that was a little too soft. It was more like God the grandpa. Um, you know, like those of you who are grandparents, isn't being a grandparent better than being a parent? You know, it's just like you just, yeah, give the kids some candy. You know, just we're going to have fun. Right? It's just, you have this great role. You can redeem whatever brokenness was in your, right? I mean, it's just this sort of softer thing. And that, that was kind of what came across to me sometimes. What's missing in that is God's covenant love and zeal, which is more like the relationship of a spouse. All right. It's this fierce, zealous passion for his people's hearts. And covenant love just feels a little different than unconditional grace. I don't, I, I believe in unconditional grace, but covenant love has a different flavor to it than unconditional grace. It's a little grittier. It's a little more uh, uncompromising. It's, um, it's more tenacious, if I can say that. Like unconditional love, it kind of leaves you alone, if I can put it that way. Like you're kind of in unconditional, you're kind of free to live how you want to live. And, and it's there when you need it, but you, you're kind of left alone. Covenant love does not leave you alone. It meddles in your life, right? It places demands on you and holds your face to the fire. Covenant love is way more annoying than unconditional grace. Is it making sense what I'm saying right now? I was thinking of my own marriage this week, and I was like, yeah, unconditional grace doesn't really capture the flavor of what I have for my wife. Right? I mean, hopefully I'm a gracious person, but no, covenant love, that, that captures the flavor. And even the words that we heard God say to his people, that's what I said to my wife. I chose you, right? I, I chose you of all the people, and you chose me. You're my treasured possession. Now, I, I would get in trouble if I called her a possession, of course, and her me. But, you know, I, I treasure you. I have affection for you. I have love for you. Uh, and I'm appropriately jealous 
for you. I am possessive of you in an appropriate way, not because I'm insecure, even though I am insecure myself, but you know what I'm saying, but I don't want to share you, right? Which means, honey, (laughs) you are not free to do what you want. You are bound, girl. You are stuck, (laughs) right? And I'm stuck. It's kind of annoying. It's tenacious. It's gritty. It's not, it doesn't leave her alone. That's not the flavor of my love for her. Or hers for me. And hopefully, on, on top of that too, though, but there's mercy, right? There's, hey, we're, we're, I forgive, and we're, we're going to make mistakes. And yeah, well, I'm in the covenant with you, for better or for worse. So I'm, I'm sticking around. Uh, but you're stuck here. There's something more binding, I think, um, and more limiting in that relationship than unconditional grace. <laughs> but as I read the Bible, from, from Genesis to Revelation, Old Testament, New Testament, In my reading, you can come and say, I got this wrong. The dominant theme of Scripture is not God's unconditional grace. The dominant theme of Scripture is God's covenant love. That's the dominant flavor. Yes, unconditional grace is there, but the dominant flavor is covenant love. Let me just, in case you forgot the image, there it is, (laughs) right? It is this God who passionately pursues his broken people, commits himself to them, and will not stop bothering them. And makes all sorts of demands on them. And yet at the same time never gives up on them. Forgives them again and again. But says, hey, we're in this together. We are not free. We are bound. I'm in this with you and you're in this with me. And when we start to see that that is the dominant tone of our relationship with God. On the one hand, it's kind of scary. Like I, I can't just go out and do whatever I want this week. That's not how this relationship works. That's not how any covenant relationship works. But I think as you sit with it over time, it actually can become this even more comforting relationship than unconditional grace. See, because unconditional grace kind of just leaves me to my, and and I know what I'll do if I'm left to my, like, that's not going to end well. But covenant love, that jealous possessiveness means God, he's after my heart. And I know the kind of guy is, he's going to win. You know, like he's going to have my heart in the end. It may be, you know, the the, the next life, but he's going to keep pursuing me. And at some point, my heart will be entirely his. And if you've been trying to follow Jesus for any time, you know that your deepest desire is ultimately for your entire heart to be God's. And you you know how how hard it is that you're so prone to want and your heart is so fickle. And it's like, we, I don't want this about myself. Lord, I need you to come in. And I need you to, to win this struggle of my heart. And because he has that love, he's going to win. And so it, it ultimately can be this really comforting thing, I think. I'm going to leave you with a verse. New Testament, there's this man, Jesus, who had that same kind of fierce, jealous forgiving covenant love with his people. For, the love, for Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them was raised again. Begins with this notion of Christ's love. It is this covenant, fierce covenant love that was willing to die for us to establish a covenant, this passionate zeal. I'll do anything. I will die. I will lose my life to pursue you all. And Paul says that kind of covenant love, he uses this word, it compels us. Some versions say it controls us or it constrains us. The idea is that something is held in its grip. 
We are held in the grip of his love. We're bound, we're controlled. We're actually not free anymore because his love has gripped us and it compels us to live a certain way. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for the one who demonstrated covenant love for us. Do you do it perfectly? No, but that's the journey, right? We're gripped by it. We're limited. We're stuck with this guy. Thank God. So we go out this week, we go out and you go out into a culture and all the idols that are out there, all the the things that people are setting their hearts on, right? Remind yourself this week in the midst of those temptations, I am his treasured possession, right? I'm his treasured possession, which means um, I'm not free to pursue these things the way I, 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 my heart just might want to. But the greatest thing is to be, you know what? I don't need to pursue these things anymore because everything I need is here in this relationship with this God. He, he, is my, he is everything I need. So I'm actually freed from having to pursue these things. So live this week with that identity as his treasured possessions. And he is fierce in his desire for your heart. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we sit with this picture in Deuteronomy of your, your fierce devotion to your people and your faithfulness to the covenant, which plays out in a, in a jealousy, but also this rich mercy. Help us to experience that as a life-giving reality, that you just love us. And help us, if, wherever we doubt that, wherever it feels like just too good to be true, that you really care about us that much. Would your spirit move in our hearts and minds this week? to be reminded again that you really are devoted to us in that way. And where we're tempted to just kind of write you off and to go our own way, pull us back. Remind us that we're in this together and that with you, we actually have what we most deeply need and we don't need to search for that anywhere else. So fill us up with joy in your presence that we might be content in our covenant with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.